Welcome to the Exit Strategy, your no bullshit guide to divorce with the experienced attorneys from New Direction Family Law and guests that have been there. Unfiltered discussions to help you move from victim to victorious and from bitter to better. He's our director of client relations. Hi, Jen. Hi, I'm Jen. <laughs> I got some big shoes to fill in here with Sarah. I will not be giving any legal advice. <laughs> we are here today with Dr. Tina LePage with LePage and Associates Psychological and Psychiatric Services. And Dr. LePage, you sent out an email, I think on a monthly basis, and attached to one of them was this great article about how to communicate with folks who are hostile, and especially within a separation and divorce situation. And it's called the BIF strategy is what I call it. But Jen, you, it comes from? Yeah, it's from the book that, is, that um, Dr. LePage references in the article that came out in the newsletter that you sent. So thank you for yeah, including it on this. But it's BIF, Quick Responses to High Conflict People, Their Personal Attacks, Hostile Email, and Social Media Meltdowns. I think they, you just described our daily basis with our <laughs> clients um, or with that title. And the book is by Bill Eady. Dr. LePage, before we start, can you give our listeners a little overview of what your practice does and the sort of clientele that you reach and teach and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So LePage Associates is a multi-specialty practice where we have a number of clinicians who specialize in all different areas of mental health. And one of those happens to be separation and divorce. So we've always had a really big division here separate, uh, uh, specializing in separation and divorce. And so tell us a little bit about um, what the purpose of this communication style is. What does it address? Yeah, but the purpose of the communication style, it really is relating to that idea that when people are going through separation and divorce, or it could be other areas, right. certainly what we're referencing often is, is separation and divorce. It really is referencing that they can get their hostility can get in front of and in the way of their ability to communicate, even for people who otherwise might be pretty good communicators in life when they're not so emotionally charged, how to slow down give brief responses, give responses that are informative, that don't bring up the past or poke the other person, and that really help you be an effective co-parent. And that's so hard for folks who are going through separation <laughs> and divorce to take those feelings you have for the other parent because <laughs> you're going through that very it can be hostile what is the first thing that you try to teach them or talk to them about and and not communicating in a, in a way that is disruptive to that co-parenting the first thing that we try to tell them is that even if they are feeling really emotionally charged or even if they are really upset with the other person or even if they're feeling pretty intact, but the other person is poking them, that there is a strategy in a way that they can uh, keep their emotions in check and yet still be heard, still say what they need to say, still get the information they need from the other parent and really be effective. So effective is a word that I use a lot with people in these situations. Because sometimes they're stuck in a position in their head of, I'm so angry at that other person that I have to say this, or I have to say that, or I have to do. But there's a lot of that sort of need to be heard and need to be right or or to convince the other person sometimes of something. All of that to the side and always ask them to gauge it again. Is it effective? Because mm -hmm. ultimately people do want to be effective. And I try to gauge their needs and what they're trying to effectuate in the conversation that they're having. A lot of times when people first separate, especially if you've been the 
not the dominant spouse in the relationship, that now you finally found your voice. And it takes practice to learn how to use that voice sometimes. It does. Sometimes when you're first learning to use your voice, you're just trying to put it all out there, saying everything in a little bit of a disorganized way. And, and anger gets in the way of our brain acting in an organized way. But sure, sometimes people haven't had a voice before. So for those people, the great news is they haven't developed as many bad habits. They can learn how to have a healthy voice. And so that's a fun angle to think of it for them. And then for people, if they were the, the louder person, they can still learn how to have a healthier voice. And if they have been the person who promotes and takes forth or dominates most conversations, then they really have a lot of power to change it into a healthy conversation style. Right. So when you help your clients go through this. Are you teaching both parents or are you working with one or both or how does that work? Of course, ideally, we love to have both, right? Because then both are learning the same strategies. But one of the great things about effective communication in life is that each individual has so much power over how a conversation unfolds. And so if we're working with somebody individually, we really help them to understand that, that they can still control the cadence and the direction of this conversation just by not getting drawn in. So even if we only have one parent reaching out and conversing in a healthy way, it's going to improve the overall conversation. True. And in, in, in your article, the, the newsletter that you sent, there you have a list of rules that help you follow and learn and get in that rope so it becomes natural and it's a habit that you can continue to do. We do. And I think this is great communication style for everybody overall in a difficult situation, right? So it, when you learn this skill, the wonderful thing about it is how transferable it is to other areas of your life. Mm -hmm. This can be about an argument with your teenager. This can be about a difficult conversation you have at work with a coworker or a boss. It can be a conversation with an adult parent. So this getting in, in mind when you go into a difficult conversation, that by being brief, by just Sticking to the facts, that's the informative part, right? Staying focused, not going into the past. And I always say not poking. We know when we're poking. So I always say no poking. And also, you don't have to respond to a poke. True. But that's a hard, that's a hard lesson to learn, too, especially if the other person is doing that to get a reaction out of you. And then it just becomes this cycle that is not productive at all. Exactly. And one of the things you just said in there is so important is harnessing that knowledge that they're just trying to get a rise out of you and not giving them that. I think what I see a lot of times with, with my clients is they expect that other person to to have changed from the person that they were. It's like, why are they doing this? Why are they reacting like this? But this is how they've always done it. And that's a very big cause of frustration, I think, for folks. It is. And of course, it's easier sometimes to see the way other people could change. What I tell people when they come in for co-parenting work is that when people come to me for that, they have a list of ways that they think the other person should change, things that they're doing wrong. And that list might even be correct. But they only have control of themselves. So the only way they make the co-parenting relationship better is to be willing to look at themselves and see what things in themselves they can change. And of course, when I can get both co-parents into that mindset, then change really does move forward because they're both working on themselves. But even if I can get one person in that mindset, it's the whole action reaction in life, right? If one person can make some change, you just feel better about yourself and you just feel better about your own communication. Right. 
So it's it's all good anyway. It's a win-win if you improve your own communication style. And a lot of times I'm working with clients who have court orders and a lot of times within those custody orders are you can send one email a week or one email a day and you have to respond or look at it within 24 hours and that sort of thing. And that's overwhelming for folks, especially if you're thinking, do I really need to respond to this? But the court is telling you, you have to. That puts you in a bit of bind sometimes. That's a great point in terms of how orders are written. I'm not a big fan of orders that say you have to respond within 24 hours. I know where that comes from and trying to get responsiveness between co-parents, et cetera. But unless it's an emergency, that's too much. That makes people be in a bit of a frenzy that in our busy lives and works and raising our children and all that. Mm -hmm. Also respond to an email that frankly, from a position of a psychologist might be better responded to after you calm down a little, reflect on it, think about it. But I think that when they are in a bind to your point and it says you have to respond in a certain way, if you use this model, you can do that. And sometimes the response can even be, I've received your email and I'd like to reflect on it for a day or two since it's not time sensitive and I promise to get back to you by such and such a date. And that's a, that's a reasonable response. That is reasonable. So it says the first rule is to always ask, do I need to reply to this at all? So how do you determine that? If it's an email that's just full of hopes, which there are a number of those that come through. So there's no real question in it that needs to be replied to. They're not deciding should the child go to summer camp this summer or it's just not a decision-based email. It's somebody sending out an email, for example, saying, I can't believe you didn't make eye contact with me today where we dropped the kid off. And then maybe a whole host of insults about what that means about them. So that's a fair question, whether you really even need to respond to that or not. And I had a case recently, a custody case, and part of the issue was that the one parent would start an email, ask a question, and then it would de deteriorate into oh, you did this to me, and what about this 10 years ago? And so there was a question in there, but then you just get slogged down and sucked in, and it's and it just keeps going. So is there a way to shut that down? Yes, and that's a great example of the way you just laid that out for people who are listening. Because in that example, there is a question. There was something that you said at the beginning of that that the email was about. And so you just respond to that. So we is a really great communication style to learn, right? <laughs> it, I, I think Mark Twain had said, I would have written a shorter letter if I had more time. So if you actually think about what you're writing, you put a little time into it, you can make it more brief, which is better. And just by keeping it brief, you're already saying to yourself, I'm not going to put lots of insults and hopes in there. So in your example, I would respond to the question at hand. Still politely, you always lift yourself up above. You don't give a snarky brief response. You just give a brief response. Okay, I'm going to answer the question. And then you don't comment on the rest. How do you help someone? I think it's just human nature. Somebody's going to come at me and, or accuse me of things. And a lot of people feel like, well, I need to respond to that because if I don't, then it means then somebody's going to think it's true or something like that. So what are some skills to get away from that? I think recognizing that some of the things we tell ourselves are not true. For example, it, it's not correct that people are going to believe it if you don't respond to it. <laughs> it's not correct that if you respond to it, you're going to change the person's mind. It's not correct that you need to defend your honor in some way. I try and get people to think more about the flip side of it. Of Isn't it maybe 
protecting yourself and loving yourself a bit more not to get drawn in to this argument. I don't have to respond back to somebody who says I'm a horrible person and say, oh, no, I'm really nice. <laughs> They're allowed to have that opinion of me if they want. Maybe it will change later in life. Maybe it won't. But I think really thinking about your own mental health and what does getting drawn into that conversation do to you? When we get drawn into those conversations, we start to feel icky inside. We start to feel angry. We start to feel irritable. We start to feel depressed. Whereas just telling yourself some positive self-statement or that's not true. I know the person has a misperception of me. I know they're angry at me, but that's okay. I have a lot of people in life who love me. A lot of people in life who know who I am and like me for who I am. And I'm not going to spend my time this afternoon getting embroiled in that. And you step away from it and I guarantee you have a better afternoon and you feel a lot better and your mood is a lot better. And just the things you ticked off of how that makes you feel are not conducive to being a good parent, <laughs> being angry. Because you're going to take that anger out on somebody. As they say, the dad comes home, kicks the dog and because he's mad, but that's not what it's about. You're redirecting your anger onto something else. So I love that advice to say, love yourself. I have lots of people who care about me and see if you can just let that go. That's great advice. And I like what you added to that, that it makes it, it, it helps you to be a better parent. We we all know parenting is an imperfect art, right? Those of us who have kids, it's, it is, and probably those of us who don't have kids that watch us trying to raise our kids. <laughs> True. <laughs> but we do know that the more irritated or uh, agitated we are, the harder it is to be our best selves as a parent that day. So to be extent, we can keep boundaries in our own life and not uh, jump into these pools of hostility when we don't have to. It's not only great for our own mental health, but it's great for our parenting and great for our kids. And I always tell parents think that kids don't hear them or see how they interact with each other at the basketball game and that sort of thing. So if you're, to me, if there's a lot of animosity between your written communication, it's going to show up when you go do an exchange or you're at an extracurricular. So it has, this has benefits all, all over your life, not just in how to communicate with your partner, but how to model for your kids on how to get through rough situations. Exactly. And one thing I tell the parents who get really stuck, some people get really stuck in that idea of I'm doing all the things right now. I'm, you know, communicating appropriately and I'm not being negative and I'm not saying anything bad about them in front of the kids. And I'm doing all of these things and I'm writing nice emails even when they write nasty emails. And yet they're still doing all of those things. And so it's, it's not fair. So I should respond that way or I have to respond that way. And I tell them, no, what, what you need to realize is if it's true that other parent is doing those things and they're never going to change, your child needs at least one good, healthy role model. Absolutely. If your kid needs at least to see you have some effectiveness and emotion regulation and anger management and all of those things and be able to watch and observe how well you deal with difficult situations and difficult people. And that's a huge yeah. gift to be able to give your child and much more important than poking your ex back or defending yourself in some way if your ex is, is saying something negative about you. Absolutely. I think we can all agree with that 100%. Hey guys, it's Jen with New Direction Family Law. Let's face it, divorce affects a lot of people, myself included. I've been there. There's no easy way around it. It just sucks. But determining the finances of one household splitting into two can be one of the most stressful issues of divorce. Will alimony or child support have to be paid? Who gets the house and the cards? Who has to pay all the credit card debt or any other debt? Do I get to keep all of my retirement? 
These are all important questions that you need answered going into a divorce. And it's so important that you're represented by an experienced family law attorney that can answer these questions for you and help you develop a plan specifically for you and your situation to move forward. New Direction Family Law has over 30 years experience protecting the rights of our clients when going through divorce. We aggressively advocate, support, and educate our clients to achieve the best possible outcomes. So give us a call today to schedule an initial consultation at 919-719-3470 or reach out to us via our website at newdirectionfamilylaw.com. I just wanted to add, I know, Elizabeth, whenever you said what skills or tools would you go offer, I know something that's been helpful for me in the past with those kind of communications and I don't, Dr. LePage, you might think this is a slippery soap. I don't know. But is if I did feel the need to get those emotions out in some sort of written way, I would I've either typed up the text but never hit send and then walked away and erased it later or send, typed up the email but never hit send. Um, or I've even recorded myself talking out how I felt or what my response would be in that moment. But it was a voice note and it just stayed on my phone or I deleted it. But at least I was able to get those emotions out, but it was never actually a response that went to the other person in the situation. So I don't know if you think that would be a useful tool or if it's, ah, you're still on the teeter of maybe hitting send. So. <laughs> you don't hit send. It's a useful tool if you don't hit send. Certainly, and, and we've had clients do that before where, of course, if they're in session, they'll just do it paper to pencil, which I guess protects a little bit from hitting send. Yeah. Yeah. They're just writing um, and saying what they're thinking and feeling and not necessarily, obviously not cycling it. And the other thing is to, Look in people that you can talk to. Don't go to your ex to shop these things out. Certainly not your kids. But if you have other people, whether it's friends, family, professionals, minister, rabbi, whoever, whoever's important to you or can listen to you. The only caveat I always give with that to people is that your friends can over-identify with your point of view sometimes, right? You can talk to, you, you want to go to your friends, let you vent and be supportive but not get you riled up by saying, oh yeah, he or she, she is so bad or yeah. they are so awful. Those are actually not necessarily the friends to go talk to for this type of help. Right. And so in the newsletter, you've got rule number two. It says leave out the three A's. So what are the three A's? I oh, know. Gosh, now you, you caught me on my, my, well, okay. I, I can help, I can help, help you. you out. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a test now. It is. It's a pop quiz. We forgot to tell you that was happening today. So Jan, go first. You can do the first day. All right. So the first day is, and it says to avoid these things, and that is advice. So what do you mean when you say avoid giving advice? Parents, co-parents who are not getting along, and, and in general, people appreciate suggestions or thoughtfulness or a conversation more than they appreciate advice, right? Advice says, I know I'm right. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. And by the way, since I have to give you advice, you probably don't know. It puts you in a one up, one down position with somebody by saying, here, I'm going to give you the, this advice. So rather than give advice, if there was something you're trying to figure out, like how do we get the child to have a consistent bedtime across houses? It's better to invite the person into a conversation, maybe share what you've been doing in your house that works or doesn't work, and then ask an inquisitive question. What are you doing? Are you doing some things I can incorporate here? So it's just the idea that advice is not usually well received between people who are hostile with each other. And even if not, just thinking about psychologically what advice is, it really is a one up, one down positioning and saying, I know what's right. I'll tell clients that all the time. Don't go to somebody and say, here's what I'm going to do or here's what we're going to do. Use who, what, why, when, where, open-ended questions, just like you said, because if you start out 
And the other way, they put them up, their back is already up against the wall and, and you've already shut down the communication. But that's a hard, that's a hard lesson to learn too. You think it's, and you might have the best advice, but you put them in a position where they can't even hear it, which is unfortunate. And the other thing we also remember when we're giving advice is we don't know what we don't know. There might be something else that the other person can really offer to the conversation that we can learn from. And now we have an even better solution than the one we walked in with that we were going to give advice about. Right. And then the second A um, is admonishments. So what do you mean by that? When you admonish somebody, you basically tell them everything they've done wrong. Oh, you gave the child ice cream before bed. They're not going to sleep. Right. You Admonishing is saying, oh, look how wrong you are. Look at what a bad parent you are. It, it never improves anything. It certainly doesn't improve relationships. It oftentimes results in the other person being defensive. So instead of even being able to think about, okay, yeah, they got a little wound up. Maybe next time I won't give them ice cream. If you do it in an admonishing way, the person will get defensive. You've given them ice cream before dinner before. Remember that time, blah, blah, blah. And then the conversation just is going over. And what you got in the article is... Um... Saying things like you're overreacting or you should be ashamed and putting, I guess that's more of a putting them down to put yourself, feel superior, I suppose. It's any and all of the above, right? Anytime you admonish somebody, whether it's a specific example or a more broad thing, like you just mentioned from the article, anytime you put somebody down, it's going to make that relationship go south. Nobody says, oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Good point. <laughs> Okay, Jed, what's the last A? So the last one, and I'm particularly fond of this one because I think we are always so, the last A is apologies. And I think everyone across the board is so quick to apologize for anything, whether it's as something as simple as what you mentioned, the example you gave in your article was, sorry, I'm late, as opposed to saying, thank you for your patience. We're so quick to apologize for things. And I love what you put in here about saying, I'm sorry that my email upset you. Is that person accepting responsibility for the other person's emotions? And so it's so, it can be so hard to take a step back and realize that because we are just so, in our brains just ingrained. The first thing is that we're apologizing for whatever it is. Can you elaborate a little bit more on why you should avoid apologies in hostile conflict uh, situations? So for one, those quick apologies we give, if you overdo that, the other person doesn't feel like it's genuine. It doesn't really get you to where you need to be with that person. It feels like it's too, just too quick. Oh, sorry. You know, sorry. It's just not taken very seriously. So that's part of it. The other part is sometimes it's really done by the person who in the relationship is in a position of often having to take on the emotions of the other person. So the other person is so emotional or so angry that they're putting the person on the receiving end of that anger of saying, oh, sorry, sorry. It's really just an unhealthy way to deal with somebody's anger. You don't need to apologize to somebody who's going off on you or who thinks that your being is trying to put you in a one bad position. So it's kind of trying to elevate apology to what it should be. Good apology is, first of all, it's only used when you really need to apologize, when you've done something absolutely wrong that you should apologize for. But it's counterintuitive to me a little bit. We're talking about somebody being hostile. I, I think uh, the way to lower that is for me to say, oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, let's do it this way or calm down or something like that. But I love turning it around and, and saying thank you, putting a positive spin on it to the other person, which can really diffuse the situation by thanking them for their patience, like Jen said, or something like that. Yes, and I, I think to to this point we're talking about in these types of of relationships or situations, 
the other thing that tends to happen if we're always apologizing to people who are coming at us is that it makes them feel justified on right. They will come back and say, oh, see, she apologized to me or he apologized to me. He or she knew that they were way in the wrong by being late when maybe you were just late because you got behind school less and you feel a little bit longer to get there. So it really does also create, it just feeds into anybody who's a narcissistic, powerful type personality when others around them say sorry. And by the way, that happens all the time. And so people in those who already have those mindsets or come from that perspective or of being overbearing, they hear the I'm sorry all the time. And then they say, see, I was right. And really they're not behaving well. And so to wrap up, is there a common thread through this that there's always or more than likely to be a power differential in these types of relationships where this is needed? I'm assuming so I could. They're not always. There can be two very powerful personalities that are coming at each other. So it can be two people like that. It can be oftentimes, as you're suggesting, one person who's more aggressive or more hostile. It's, of course, least likely to be two non-hostile people. These are great communication techniques for anybody to read and, and incorporate. Probably two people who are non-hostile already naturally incorporate some of these styles of communicating into their co-parenting. I was going to mention too, something else you mentioned in the article and one for everybody listening. This article that you wrote, it lives on your website, correct? Yes. All of these articles we, we write for our monthly newsletters that we send out do live on our website, which is lepageassociates.com. And there's one newsletter called Mental Health Matters and one called the forensic newsletter. And they have lots of articles like this that people can find and utilize for self-improvement. Awesome. And we'll put the link with the, the podcast description and everything. Thanks to Joe. But something else that was two things from the other from the article is one, you give some great examples as to what this con the conflict, high conflict and antagonistic communications look like, which I think is great because you give good responses or biff type responses and then not so biff responses. So that's great. And then you also have a link in there to the High Conflict Institute. Can you expand on what that is? Yeah, that's just the author of that book, Bill Eddy, that uh, has started an institute. And so if you go to that, it's just going to have a lot of other resources for people who are in these situations. Awesome. Dr. LePage, thank you so much. We Great information. And it. I just wish People will take this to heart because it can make life so much easier. So can you tell folks how to get in touch with you? Go to your website. Is that the easiest way to find you guys and get in touch? I think that's the quickest way for folks is to go to the website. And the website, of course, has phone number if people want to call in. And all of the clinicians' emails are even listed on the website. So that's the probably the best starting point for getting all of our contact information. Great. I just want to say, as the director of PR for the firm, that I feel like I have learned some useful tools to respond to negative reviews that we may get online. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> you know, the first question to a negative review is, do you need to respond? <laughs> and that's fine. Well, from a marketing perspective, yes, we do have to respond in some way. But I think it should be with, thank you for expressing your opinion or for the feedback. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. LePage. We really appreciate yeah. it. And hey, that's, that's some sh <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. This episode is complete. Visit newdirectionfamilylaw.com for show notes and resources. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for more resources and information. And remember, with change comes empowerment.